Believe it or not, it's a town called Flin Flon, exactly in the middle of Canada. Flin Flon is built on solid rock, and one of the first things we noticed were the boxed-in sewer pipes. Above ground, we'd never seen anything like it before. All right, we're back at it here, Sewer Box Office Podcast. Raphael Saray with you, and we are joined uh, on the line at an undisclosed location with the uh, co-hostess with the mostest, Susan Gunn. Yes, hello, I'm calling from the secret bunker. Yes, from the uh, secret bunker. Uh, is Meathead and Sally Struthers there? Um, no, not yet. Okay. No. That's something for our older listeners will get. <laughs> Bunker. Bunker. Yes, yeah, Bunker. So, Susan, we've had uh, ooh, we had a big deal coming to the uh, CFA or the uh, Sewer Box Office, the SBO Center for Broadcast Excellence. Yes, we do. Well, they're all a big deal. All our guests are lovely people, but uh, yeah, certified rock star. This one. Yeah, we've got uh, Jennifer Hansen, local superstar who uh, literally has uh, performed to sold out audiences. All across the country. Some people may know a little bit about her, but boy, we went uh, in-depth pretty much from uh, the Whitney Forum to the Winnipeg Arena to hanging out with Roxette in Scandinavia, for goodness sakes. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's a, it's a fascinating chat. Yeah, so we talked about all about her influences within her very own family. We had uh, Susan Lethbridge on earlier, and uh, what what a crazy house that uh, Hanson Lethbridge uh, houses must be. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Rock stars, a whole lot of them, from from the sisters to, to Bill and Shauna. There's something <laughs> in the water in that family. Something's going That's on. Right. In-laws, outlaws, they're all, they're all rock stars. We do have to say, Shauna's probably maybe our favorite Hanson sister, though. <laughs> Oh, we, we don't want to pick a favorite. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I, I think we're... They're our, she's out. We're her favorite guns and sarays. There we go. Perfect. Poor Dave. <laughs> poor, poor Dave. <laughs> poor Uncle Dave. For everybody else, Susan Gunn the second and is silent. Dave Gunn the first and is silent. That's how we tell us apart. Yeah, so it's going to be a, a really cool talk. Remember, this one has commercials in it because we're trying to make some sweet, sweet do re mi. So please be patient and listen to the commercials. That's all you have to do. You don't have to pay you anything have to buy for this. Anything. Yeah, you don't have to buy anything. No. You just have to listen to it. And we've got uh, Jennifer Hansen hot off of her show at Johnny's Social Club back in Manitoba singing big tunes in Winnipeg. We'll talk about her musical journey from rock to jazz to hanging out with Timu Solani and Glass Tiger and all that good Not stuff. Not at the same time. Though. Not all the same. Maybe we don't know. Well, maybe they did. My good. That's like our Saturday night hot tub parties there, Susan. <laughs> We're getting a hot tub? Huh? We're well, getting a hot tub? Well, there, there may be a Finnish salami involved somewhere. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> All right. You you fill the kiddie pool with hot water and uh, get the straws so we get the bubble jets going. Can't wait. And we'll uh, open the door for uh, the lovely and talented Jennifer Hansen coming up here on the Sewer Box Office Podcast. Oh, Canada, our home and native land. Jets hockey. It's passionate. Fiery, powerful, and that's just the anthem. Yeah, we're recording now. Oh. <laughs> my kids growing up thought that the 80s was a country. Oh my God. <laughs> because, world. because how much I played the music, I talked about it. They thought the 80s, from the 80s. From the 80s. From the 80s. So they thought it was a culture, a place. Because my daughter one day, she was four, and she said to me, 
um, mom, how many planes does it take to get to the 80s? And I was like, too many, babe, too You're many. Like thinking it's a joke or something. No, because like, because I, my kids were, we, we travel a lot. We have a, you know, a home in Norway, so that takes three planes. You oh, fly wow. to New York City, then you fly to Amsterdam, then you fly to Oslo. And coming to Canada from the States was you fly to Minneapolis, then you fly to Winnipeg. So that was two planes to get to Canada, three planes to get to Europe. How many planes does it take to get to the 80s? The 80s. Oh, wow. <laughs> So, yeah, my kids, in fact, Camilla, she was three and we're sitting at the dentist's and I'm waiting to get her in and it's it's a pediatric dentist and he happens to walk by when Camilla blurts out, you know, I feel so dirty when they start talking cute. <laughs> and the dentist says, oh, Jesse's girl, I like that one. Like, oh. Your point is moot mostly. Thank, <laughs> thank God. Okay. Yeah. So we have uh, questions. We could just rap, man. Uh, so Flin Flon, born and raised, what was Flin Flon like as a youngster? Um, it, it was, you know, as a really young child, it was paradise because we lived right on the edge of the bush, as we called it. And we had a park right almost across the street. And behind the park was where the road we wheel is now and the, and the, and the tourist bureau and behind that Grant Lake. So we spent a lot of times, I personally wasn't responsible for the bush burning down several times but i was there when it happened um clearing we call that clearing a witness we call it i was a witness yeah so uh yeah it was it was pretty nice it was a pretty good i had a pretty good childhood i was one of many children and um so i was pretty much left to my own devices in a good way you know um I, yeah, I had a great childhood. The, the the curious anomaly of the time that I was growing up was probably the only time that Flin Flon's music scene was not that great. We didn't have a community choir. We didn't have a glee club. Um, there wasn't a lot of music going on in high school. Um, the band teachers that we had were very sort of straight ahead band teachers. And by the time I got to high school... I played clarinet because when I started in junior high, they wouldn't let girls play drums, which is what I wanted to play. So I played clarinet because my dad played wow. clarinet and I hated it. And I, so I quit, even though it was probably the only classes I got any good marks in, but I quit because it wasn't fun. So it was, there was really a, a, a dearth of, you know, music going on then, which was strange, but, but I got into a band in high school, a rock band. We, we were called Rampy. And uh, it was pretty so was, yeah, was is this so you're the baby, so right? I was, yeah, I was, but this was a well, I also sang with my family's gospel okay. band, um, which wasn't quite as exciting, but harmonically it was much better. Um, but Rampage consisted of uh, Eddie Wilson on drums and Ron Bates on bass, and Jennifer Panasiak was the lead singer and piano player, and Bruce Waite was the guitar player. And I was sort of an add-on, like, I think they were, you know, doing it to be nice to me and because I really wanted to be in a band. And so I sang lead in a couple songs. I think I played tambourine and, you know. Did, is this is this when you guys opened up for Chilliwack? Yes. Ooh. Yes. Is that the, is this, what, the Community Hall, Whitney Forum? Whitney Forum. The big house. We were horrible. Oh, no. We were horrible. I don't know if it's because people were drinking I don't know what, but we were horrible, and I went to hide, and the lead singer came up to me and said, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, your band is awful, but you are pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So was Susan already 
a big deal by this point and she moved oh, out and god yeah she was a rock star to me and everybody she sang with she sang in really good bands so that was a real i mean that was my whole probably since i was four susan was a singer cindy was a singer susan went off to um winnipeg when i was about four and that was sort of my goal was to that was what i was going to do always i never was going to do anything else being a singer was all i was right from the time I, you know, could talk. So was your house just like a Von Trapp family? Was mm-hmm. it a lot of just music your dad would It was actually. Like big band stuff? Or? Yeah, so my dad, actually my dad was the hippest guy. He did listen to a lot of big band music, but we had Miles Davis, Bitches Brew. We had Saturday Night Fever. We had Santa Esmeralda, which was fun for dancing. We had Spike Jones and the Wacky Wacky oh, Keens, yeah. which got a lot of play. Um, you know, I, I learned to sing from a lot of those singers. My mom loved Mahalia Jackson. So we played a lot of that. Um, my parents just were really intelligent music listeners and, and we just had a lot of different. And then of course, Cindy, you know, she had a lot of folk albums, but she also had, you know, uh, songs in the key of life. Um, Stevie wonder, we had the beach boys, we had the Beatles because, you know, there was seven, there was six older people than me, plus my parents. So there was, it makes sense that I sing the kind of music I sing, which is most things, because that's what was being played in my house. So so there was a little bit of everything going everything. on? Everything. There was everything. And we sang all the time. That's what we did. I mean, when you did the dishes after dinner, when you were just sitting around, we sang, and that's what we did. That was our entertainment. So did you go visit Susan in the city? And yes, I did. sort of the eye-opening? Yes. Oh, like, yes. Yes, I, The first time I went, uh, well, the first time I went, I was with my parents, and I was probably six or seven, and I, I, that was very exciting because um, that was the first time, you know, I think I stayed in a hotel. And But the, the second time I went, I was 12, and I saved my babysitting money all summer, and I flew on the airplane with with a girl that my brother was dating, and she paid for half my flight. She was rich, and I paid for half my flight. And I went and stayed with Susan and Brent, and I think they took me to, I don't know, the Portage La Prairie X, and Rocky Roulette was playing. And it was just, it blew my mind. It was just, I could not believe how exciting it was. And Susan was, you know, so pretty, and I think I weighed the same that she did. You know, she was like just this petite, beautiful, blonde goddess, and men were just falling all over her. And she was such a good singer, and the other singers she sang with were so good. And I just thought, yeah, this is uh, this is for me. Plus, everybody was sleeping in till you know noon. Yeah, this is the. <laughs> What's this AM you speak of? Yeah, I, I actually, to, to to be honest with you, that seemed like a pretty magical thing to me. You get paid to sing and you sleep in. That's amazing. <laughs> I would like to subscribe to your newsletter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So is this the the Donna O'Brien story that we are poking and prodding for here? Oh no, that was when else? I was almost eighteen. Okay. No, she drove me to Winnipeg, and uh, because I was going to look to see where I was going to was live. This the official move out, kind of. No, this was the official go and see what's going on okay. in Winnipeg, and then come back and and uh, you know see what you found. Uh, I found several bars that you know let me get in underage and go see some singers, and that's where I saw Kathy McDonald, and it changed my life. Um. Yeah, it just, I, I needed to sort of see Winnipeg through the eyes of someone that might live there, and nothing about it uh, stopped me from <laughs> wanting, <laughs> to, wanting to get there, yeah. even if I had to walk, so, yeah. So was this, like, right after high school, pretty much? That was, um, that I graduated in 86, so that was the fall of 86, so that was a couple months after I graduated, and then as soon as I turned 18, within a month of turning 18, I got on the bus and moved to Winnipeg. And were you able to get gigs well i saved i worked at the co-op for i can't remember how long maybe a year and a half maybe two years and i saved about twelve hundred dollars and 
I went and lived with a girl, um, a roommate that was a friend of my sister's, and I lived with her um, for a while. And I got a job at Le Chateau, the one on Main Street on uh, Portage Avenue, that oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. that outlet store. I was probably the worst employee they ever had. Um, and then I just started going to see bands, and I I started dating the sound man of this band called Four Seventeen, and they had a couple changeovers, and then they ended up firing their singer, and that was about a year into me being in Winnipeg. And I I actually started a band called Grace Face before that with the keyboard player from Streetheart, uh, a really great drummer, uh, Vince Fontaine, who now has Eagle and Hawk in Indian City. And uh, Crash Crash Dummies Dummies bass player Dan. I met I met Dan actually when we both auditioned for another band that was horrible. Actually, it wasn't horrible. It just wasn't the band for us. So we both quit and decided to start our own band. So we started a band called Grace Face and we played for a little while here and there. And I worked at Winnipeg Supply, which was a hardware store. And I hated that (laughs) job. Um, you th- you seem perfect to my plumbing fixtures from. <laughs> well, they taught me how to make keys and they taught me how to pick locks, which I thought was a <laughs> really a handy skill. Um, yeah, it was probably a good job for someone who wanted a, a real job. I just I was not a real job person. Um, so yeah, I got into Grace Face, made some crappy money, and then that is really interesting. Your cat is eating flowers. I think my cat does that too. No, I, my cat loves that. Um, yeah, and then I think Ralph James, who became my agent, uh, who is now books this band called Nickelback. I don't know if you know about them. Um, when he oh, was, scene. yeah, exactly. When he was uh, in Winnipeg, he's a guy from Winnipeg. He was the bass player from Harlequin. He uh, he told me what I needed to do to to get into a band that he would book seriously, and and uh, so I, you know, I got on the stick and started working hard, and you know, kind of just putting together some songs that I thought I could do. And, and, uh, I auditioned for this band called 417 and we started it, I think in the summer of 88 and we called it generator. I didn't come up with that name. I'm not quite that self-centered. Um, yeah. So that, that's what started, started my sort of rock career. So this is like full rock covers or. Yeah, we did cover tunes. We did some originals. And then when we got, we had a, a guitar player for about six months and then we got, uh, another guitar player who I ended up dating for four years, but he wrote the, the tunes for generator and they were really great tunes. Um, and the keyboard player wrote some tunes and we had quite a few personnel changes because it's because you live on the road. You so know, this 40 is weeks. Yeah. We toured. Um, we didn't tour across the country because we made too much money, not touring that far. We, we toured, uh, Western Ontario out to, uh, Western Alberta. We didn't really have to go farther than that. Um, so you don't, right? If you don't have to, you don't, because it's just a lot to, so to travel. So this a van or a This was a van. Well, we had a, we had a van. We had a big rider truck that carried oh, all our gear. Go. And we had a full-time, so, you know, it was full-time. So we had a full-time sound man, full-time light man. Um, we probably made upwards of two hundred and eighty, three hundred $300,000 a year, like in our, you know, as far as what the band made. And then, I mean, I, I was making good money, but obviously our overhead was huge. Mm-hmm. You pay for the rider truck every week. You pay for the sound man. You pay for the lights. You pay for the PA. You pay for the, you know, the musicians, the agency yeah, fees, the gas. That, yeah. that was the gross. Yeah. I mean, I think I was making twenty five grand a year in 1988, which was pretty good for someone that, you know, worked, you know, Living I don't know, 25 rights. hours yeah. a week. Yeah. So... But it's hard because it's hard to be on the road, you know, it's, it's, but when you're 20, it's not hard. When you're 20, it's like a holiday because you wake up in a restaurant and you go eat, you know, at two o'clock in the afternoon, you eat breakfast. And so it seemed like a pretty ideal life, you know, back then, which it was. So who were, were there 
people around that people might know, like around that time with you guys? Um, yeah, or yeah, I, yeah. Burgeoning stars who became big and things. Well, obviously, my bass player left Generator to go be in in his brother's band, uh, which at the time was the St. James Rhythm Pigs, and then they became Crash Test Dummies. And <laughs> my famous words to him was, "Well, I don't know how he's going to pay you three hundred dollars a week, but good luck with that." <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, we, we had this curious, uh, fortune of being booked by Hungry Eye, which was Ralph James, who, you know, he made us a lot of money and we got on some crazy tours. Like we toured with Long John Baldry. Like we were, we were a rock cover band who did some originals and it doesn't seem to make sense, but I think what they were looking for was to sort of round out uh, a kind of a wider audience array of people that would come and see these headliners so we did a tour with baldry we did a tour with a band called idolize who i really liked uh we did we did some gigs with sass jordan we did some gigs with lee aaron we did some gigs with um probably more people than i can remember matt minglewood which was an odd pairing i think um yeah so we just we we did a lot of short tours with bands that um they were really fun for us. Um, we were a really good band, so I don't think we, you know, I don't think we were, were over our heads in any way, except that, you know, we, we probably should have gotten signed, but I think we were making a lot of money for the people that were booking us, and so we just kept doing that. Did you guys record or video oh, yeah. or anything Oh, like yeah. That? Oh, yeah. We've got a, I've got a website called generator.ca, and you can see some videos and some, some of the tunes and stuff. classic 80s Oh, yeah. Capsule. Oh, yeah. I'll send you some tunes if you want. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a very good band. I mean, it was, it was, we were a good band. And, and like I said, we should have gotten signed. I'm not bitter about it now, but I kind of look back and I think we had really good classic rock tunes, but classic rock was kind of on its way out in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. And I don't know that, I started having vocal problems and I don't know that at the time I was able to make the jump to what was going on in the nineties. I didn't like it. I didn't like grunge. I didn't like grunge. I wasn't ready for it. I needed my, my songwriter was totally moving in that direction. I mean, he was a great songwriter and he was moving in the direction of writing more sort of rock, you know, rather than pop rock. He always did write rock, but I, I was, having a lot of vocal problems and I was tired because singing six nights a week is hard. And, and then I got, um, I just got tired and I wanted to take a break. So I disbanded generator, sold the van, uh, and went and auditioned for glass tiger. Ralph James got me an audition, um, for glass tiger. It was February of 91 and they were not going to audition me because they were so tired of auditioning singers and they did it as a favor to Ralph because I flew all the way to Toronto to, you know, to audition for them. And uh, they just, they did it out of just being kind because they, you know, they knew I flew all the way there. And I think within 10 minutes they were like, yep, you're hired. <laughs> so that was good. So did you go on tour with Glass Tiger? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, for the year, for 91 and a bit of 92. So we, um, it was, it was super fun. I was not terribly well behaved. I was pretty young. I was 22. They were all in their mid thirties. So they were grown ups already. Um, I was not used to the sort of decadence that came along with that kind of tour. They were the darlings of Capitol Records. So Capitol Records treated them very well. So this is the big arenas and the whole deal. Yes. Yeah. And then when we went to Europe, we toured with Roxette. So those were really big arenas. And, you know, we had... I mean, we had first, I mean, beautiful tour buses, but riders, like they, when we went on a Canadian tour, they said to me, well, what do you, what do you like to drink? 
Um, I don't know. I like gin. I like Grand Marnier. I like those wine coolers. So every night in my dressing room, I had six wine coolers, a Mickey of gin, and a Mickey of Grand Marnier. Oh, it's like our house. <laughs> yeah, which I saved in boxes and put them under the bay of the bus. So at the end of that tour, I had a huge party on the bus. That did not go over well, uh, but it was a great party. Yeah. So did you come back here like in summers or mm-hmm. were you still... Every Christmas. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. Every Christmas, every summer, uh, Generator played here. I made sure Generator played here probably every three months uh, because I wanted to come home. I'm very much a Flin Flon girl. Um, yeah, so I came home all the time. And it was funny because my parents were really strict growing up. And so when I finished singing at the Flin Flon or at the Vic... My mom expected me home at 2.15. Like, I was home. done at 2. Yeah, I was done at 2, and she was like, there is nothing that needs to happen after midnight that you can't do at home. So I'd, yeah, there were, I'd drive home, and, you know, meanwhile, my boyfriend, you know, I'm a grown-up living with my boyfriend in the city, and he's staying in the hotel in Flin Flon. I'm like, I'm not staying in a hotel. I got a mom and dad at home. I'm going home. And you're like tying sheets together, climbing down <laughs> like a Molly Ringwald film. You know, we were we were just kids. We were 20 and 21, so it didn't occur to you to not stay with your parents. And, you know, and I came home every Christmas. And, I mean, I lived for being at home, you know. I lived for, yeah, it was, it, it, this has always been the place that, you know, held me together, so... So was it around this time that you got to sing for the Jets? How did that, did you yeah, audition? Did they so, ask you? Yeah, uh, so somebody asked me. I don't know who. I don't remember. I think, uh, once again, Ralph got me. Ralph James got me the audition. Um, and I went in. I think that was like 89. 1989 was the first time I sang. Um, so I sang for them a few times in 89, uh, quite a few times in 90. And then in 91, when I went on tour with Glass Tiger, I sang once or twice, not a lot. And then I came back in 92, and that's when I started kind of being the regular singer. So were you able to perform out there? Was it just Winnipeg when you, because you've got all these dates already booked? Um, as far as what do you mean? Like, do you go on tour in the off season or in between singing or do they no, give so, you the whole list and you have so to be back here? Then, no, so back then that wasn't how they did it. I think that's how they do it now. I mean, Stacy is their singer unless she can't do it. I mean, she's a school teacher. So, um, you know, I'm sure she has some conflicts. The, the, the woman that sings for the Jets now, who's wonderful. Um, but back then, uh, it was just sort of, um, there was several different singers that sang. I think, uh, Burton Cummings sang occasionally, Chantal Kraviatsuk sang occasionally, and I think once I started singing more often and people started responding, that's when they started buying my clothes for me. That's when they, you know, when I had season tickets and they paid really well, actually. Um, and so that it started just sort of more becoming a thing. And I didn't tour a lot because by the time I was really singing a lot for the Jets, I had gone through some serious vocal problems. I actually screwed up the anthem one time and it was just horrible. Uh, and the Rockets, Oh, and it was just like and Carl Lewis, 16,000 people started laughing at me and I just, oh. <laughs> um, but once I got some vocal therapy and some help and I just, I kept on, you know, you keep on keeping on and yeah. And I started singing jazz. So I wasn't really touring with that. I, I mean, I toured, you know, I did some jazz festival tours, but not, I mean, it wasn't the, not the rock star. Well, stuff. it wasn't the jazz festival season isn't in the winter. So, you know, I wasn't singing at hockey games. So yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, some of my memories of that time are hazy because you just, you, you're not, you know, you're not looking at every day that happens as, oh, I have to remember this day, you know, I have to remember this. I met the, I remember the day I met my husband because I met him at a hockey game. Ooh, well, um, then let's go through, we have a story here. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Um, I don't, I, 
it might have been an Ottawa Senators game. I don't really remember, but I think I only sang the Canadian anthem. Um, yes, I remember because I was wearing my red dress. I didn't usually wear the red dress when I had to sing the American anthem because the dress was so tight and showed so much cleavage that I was worried that I would pop out of the oh dress singing the high yeah. notes in the American anthem. Like that's probably physically impossible, but it was a fear that I had. Yeah. Um, so I went up to, I think it was the Molson box cause they always let me drink for free up there. So I went up there and my husband was up there with Bo and Tom from, at the time, Q94FM, and they were, you know, two kind of well-known DJs with the morning show, and they're still good friends of mine. I see them all the time. And Henrik and this other guy who had done this goofy commercial for Q94 were, were on. They were on this commercial, and, and uh, my husband was living in Nashville at the time. He had moved from Norway to go to flight school, and he got discovered as a model at the time. So, oh, wow. so they he got the he got the job doing this commercial. Uh, Q ninety four made the commercial in Nashville, so that's how he got the job. And then they flew him up there for this party they had. And I met him in the beer in the beer box, and I walked up to him and I said, "That is the worst Arnold Schwarzenegger accent I have ever heard," because I thought he was faking it. Yeah. Is he like a big muscly guy? Yeah, yeah he okay. he oh literally goodness. was like, he was a bodybuilder, you know, and so he was like, well, that's actually my accent. I'm <laughs> I'm from Norway. I was like, oh, okay, because I, I, I was sure that it didn't sound German. And then I'm like, oh, how do I back this, <laughs> this up? This is awkward. No, we have to get married. Yeah. <laughs> so I, well, and I thought he was dumb because he... <laughs> because he, you know, I mean, big bodybuilder kind of guys don't look all that smart when you meet them, you know, and he was really good looking. And sometimes when you meet really good looking people, you just have to be a little bit mean to them because it seems unfair. You know, it just seems like that's not, that's not all right <laughs> that you've got all that going on. So I was just a little bit mean to him. And I think he liked that. I think he thought, wow, just like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so we met at this club later on and my friends were playing in a band. So I went up to sing cause you know, I wanted to impress him. And, uh, I don't know, we just, I'm not the kind of woman who picks up men, you know, so, well, no, that's completely not true. I'm not the kind of woman who picks up men uh, for, you know, a short relationship. So, so I just said goodbye to him when I left and he said, can I have your number? I'll call you from Nashville. You know, you seem like a really cool person. So we just talked on the phone for the next two years and I never thought I would see him again. So I probably told him way too much information about myself. Like if I had known we'd start dating, I probably would not have told him 60% of the things I did but you know that's how friendships start it is yeah <laughs> exactly so being for the Jets is it sort of quasi glamorous is it you know hanging out with Gretzky's and Howard Church oh yeah thing? it was yeah. it was pretty damn glamorous yeah it was I mean all the they all knew me they all knew who I was I did I met, I met Gretzky on several occasions but you know he was super famous and you know, I we all hung out at there. There was one or two clubs that we all hung out at. It was called the, Club. Or? No, no, no. I mean, some of the younger guys might have. I didn't see them, but we hung out at uh, a club called the Marble Club, which later became Wise Guys. It's now closed down. It was called the Rory Street Marble Club, and everybody hung out there. It was really, and Generator played there. So that's when I first started meeting them, and then you know, then I was singing the anthem, and I was still singing in Generator a little bit when I started singing the anthem. Yeah, so I got to know them, and, and uh, there were certain hockey players that you stayed away from, and there were certain hockey players that were super nice. Uh, Timu Solani and I became friends, and he was, I kind of protected him from aggressive women. I mean, it's, like 19, you know, right? it, I have to tell you, it was insane. The, the things that women would do, I like, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, the, it was bad enough, the groupies we had in Generator and the groupies that I would see around the more well-known bands. 
Ah, uh, holy cow, it was crazy. I would just sit beside we were I remember sitting with Timu Solani this one night and this one came up and whispered in his ear and I just looked at her and I went, I am sitting right beside how do you know I'm not his girlfriend? She said, Well, are you? No, but that's not the point. <laughs> And uh, it was just, it was crazy. But um, yeah, so he was a really nice guy. Keith Kachuk was a complete ass. Um, just uh, Dale Howarchuk, super nice guy. Oh, thank the you. People, <laughs> Six-year-old rap is like, yay. The people think that you thought were nice were nice. Yeah, Mark Messier was nice, but he was very flirty. Um, yeah, just, just ask Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, just super, yeah. Lots of, you know, professional athletes, they, they do... Um, they learn how to be with people. You know, they learn how to talk to people. They learn the Did you game. find that maybe like some like small town Canadian guys are more shy than than others uh, or? Yeah, I mean, although they get over that pretty quick. Okay. Yeah, they get over that pretty quick. Once fame hits, you sort of learn how to deal with people. You <laughs> I'm know. on TV and I have a million dollars. Yeah, and it's, I mean, th- I think it's also, you know, when you get a lot of adulation and you get a lot of people wanting to talk to you all the time, if you don't know any better, you think it's, you know, you sort of, you 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 internalize it way too much. We all do. Everybody does that. You know that when you have this certain skill that you work hard on, of course, you know you have a reason to feel good about it. But also, you get unrealistic about it because people tell you how freaking great you are all the time. And when you're young, it goes to your head really quickly. So then, um, rock and roll became jazz. Is that because just the vocal? Yeah, it was. Need? Well, I mean, I really liked jazz. I, I grew up with it, so I knew. I knew how to sing a standard and that's not a given. I mean, just, you know, that's a, that's not something rock singers don't just sing standards. I mean, I had to work at it a little bit, obviously. And, but because I had grown up with it, I knew how to phrase, you know, um, Michael Bublé's great at it. Rod Stewart, not so much. People can hate me for saying that, but I'm sorry. I hated those records that he did. Um, Willie Nelson. Great. Gr- loved that album. Loved that album of standards that he did. Um, but that's because he's Willie Nelson. Mm-hmm. So it's you know it's it's a different it's a different thing. It's a different it's a whole different set of body of knowledge. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I missed rock. I I will always be a rock singer. But I really like singing standards. And I kind of you know versatility in some ways has killed my career. But in some ways it's been great to make a living. So yeah. So I started singing jazz, and uh, I stayed stayed with it for a long time. So that was, was there able to, was there more rock work or more jazz work in around oh, Winnipeg at this time? Well, the time I started singing jazz, there was a lot of work for me for oh. jazz. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was, I think the first couple of years I sang jazz, I was making under $15,000 a year. Uh, but, you know, when you're single and you live in a small apartment, how much money do you need, you know? I mean, I, I had a sister who lived in the city. If I was really hungry, I'd go to her house for dinner, you know? <laughs> So were you, did you perform with Susan during around this time or when she was, when your paths, your paths would cross? Um, yes, we, well, we had a family gospel band that started when I was about 13, I think. So I started singing with them. So Susan and I sang together then. Um, in my early twenties, I think our family band still played. So we sang together a lot when I came home at Christmas and, and in the summer we did a lot of things. Um, but I think until my, I didn't start singing with Susan until my mid twenties. Um, so probably 95, uh, was she doing jazz stuff too or no, we started our rock band. We started, started out being the Parkview rhythm section and then it was the Hanson sisters. And that's when Joni and Cindy got in the band, our sisters. And, and we just started doing little gigs here and there. And, 
um, just more and more and more stuff as her kids got older before I had kids. So how is that dynamic performing with your siblings? It's amazing. Is it? okay. Yeah, we but we get along. We don't fight. I mean, they're, they're, Susan and Brent were kind of clearly in charge when I was younger, and then it slowly morphed into me being in charge just because I'm the one that, you know, played the most and, and was the most comfortable sort of, you know, being the boss of people and telling them what to do. So it's it's been very easy. My siblings, yeah, yeah and my siblings and I, you know, we when it when it comes to singing, we were pretty. It can be, but you know, we we didn't go on the road together. We didn't have to share hotel rooms. We didn't, you know, it was more of just a playing because we wanted to play. We didn't have a dad in the background waiting to hit somebody with a belt. You know, our dad was just thrilled to see us doing anything. Yeah, he was just thrilled to see us, and and uh, yeah, so it was it was always very easy. I'm not saying there wasn't drama. I mean, you know, if you can't hear your monitor and you're on stage with your sisters and you sound so much alike, you can't can't tell who's singing what you know there's some drama there sure there has been yeah but not nothing that we you know made us not want to play so is this when you went to move to America, or was it around this time uh we played a little bit before i moved and then yeah i i but i came back like i moved to the states to be with my husband once i had my daughter i was like well i guess i have to move to the united <laughs> states so I was still kind of living half and half when, when I had my daughter. I was still, I had a work visa, a musician's visa to be in the States, but I was coming back to Canada every couple months. I just didn't know how to not be here. I mean, I was, I did not want to live in the United States, but I was married to a, you know, a bodybuilding mo- model who was, you know, an aerospace engineer. She knows. I can relate. Yeah. So I, you know, I wanted to be with him, but I also wanted to be in Canada. So I did that for a couple of years until it just became too expensive and, you know, and then I had a toll emotionally. Yeah, and then I had another child, and then they started school. But I every summer that I came back, the Hanson sisters played gigs, and you know, I've always done stuff. I, I think I did jazz festivals up until about three years ago, if not every year, every other year in Winnipeg. So I've always come back. Like I come back, you know, I come back for the whole summer to Flin Flon. So were you recording around this time? Yeah, I did my first. Real? I did my first album uh, while I was pregnant with my daughter, actually. Um, I can actually occasionally when I listen to that album, I don't listen to it very often, but when I do, I hear, I can tell when I was like feeling like I was going to puke. So I did that first record and then I took my daughter on tour um, uh, in 98 and I did a jazz festival tour of Canada. Um, And fortunately I had Diane O'Brien Russell with me as, as the nanny. And it was hilarious because I would say, uh, okay, uh, my nanny's gonna, you know, check us in. Or she would say, I'm, uh, the, the, the nanny for Jennifer Hanson. And people would be like, isn't she a little old for a nanny? (laughs) Like, no, I'm the nanny for her baby. But actually what ended up happening was Diane ended up taking on, Diane ended up taking on management and road, you know, tour promoter and road manager. And it was, <laughs> it was really a relief because my baby was going through teething and diaper rash and we we're on the road and, you know, promoting this album. And, and, uh, it was at that time I sort of decided that I, I could not do both of these things. I know many people can, I've seen people go on the road with their kids but I wasn't married to a musician, so I couldn't be on the road with my husband. Um, I was really torn because I really wanted to be in, I love being on the road, but I just knew that if I wanted to have a happy marriage, if I wanted to have well-adjusted children, I had to do the thing that would make that happen. And that was not being on the road. So that kind of ended that dream of, you know, making it quote unquote, um, which I mourned. I mourned for, you know, that I was probably 29 when that happened. So it took me about five years to sort of get over the feeling of, 
well, I guess I'm not doing that. I mean, I never stopped singing. I mean, I sang all through, you know, my pregnancy with my second child. And when he was a baby, I brought my kids to my gigs when they were babies. My my husband's standing there. I did this gig for the mafia every Christmas. And uh, we, of course, we didn't know it was the mafia. We had an inkling. Um, they always paid us in cash at the end of the night. Um, literally, the guy pulled it out of his sock. Um, and there was like big bodyguards around and... And Where I, was this? In this the, was in Atlanta. Oh, okay. Yeah, because um, I lived in Atlanta at the time. And, and my husband brought the kids. The kids were both not feeling well, and they were both sick. And I think my son was five months old, and my daughter was two and a half oh, wow. or three. And uh, no, she had just turned two, yeah. And they're both bawling, and he's holding them, and he, he p- dresses them up. He puts on a tuxedo. This is a very adult party. And he tries to get in. He's like, look, my wife's up there. She's singing. This one needs to eat. This one is bawling. Can you please go get her? They didn't believe him. And it took about 45 minutes to convince them that they needed to come and get me. And they needed, so they came and get me. And (laughs) my kids are just bawling. So I go in the bathroom because there's nowhere to, you know, actually nurse your baby. And I'm in the bathroom and I'm hearing these exotic dancers talking about, you know, how they need to get out of toxic relationships. So I end up staying in the bathroom trying to talk young women out of a life of prostitution. And it was the craziest gig. And I, I, uh, p- part of me was torn feeling like, ah, oh, I don't really want to do a gig for the mafia, but if I don't go and talk to these women, who do they have to talk to, you know? And every year I'd wind up in the bathroom talking to these young women. It was, the, yeah, it was so crazy. Um, so yeah, I spent, you know, 20 years in Atlanta and much of it was, you know, I tried to stay positive and, and I built a life for myself and got a social group and, but I never liked it. I never enjoyed it. It was not home, you know. Is there a difference between sort of Canadian and American audiences or is there sort of a difference from no. northern Manitoba to southern United States? or just Audiences? Like- no, there's no difference between audiences. No. Um, audiences are exactly the same because audiences don't spout political beliefs or ide- ideological beliefs. Audiences, if they're good audiences, are quiet, they listen, they clap, they compliment you, they buy your CDs, they go away happy. That's audiences everywhere in the world. Um, Once you get to know people, yeah, it's like, you know, Mars and Flin Flon. It's that, you know, it's that's how different it is. So when you're recording versus playing live, because we talked to Susan about this, and she hated recording session she just didn't it wasn't oh it wasn't I, her deal it was like how do you how do you i would prefer to record really okay. yeah i i i love singing live because there's nothing like the being with an audience right and like johnny's social club it's it's the perfect side and i've talked to many famous people about this i've it's been a point to me to ask people what venue they prefer to plan and almost everybody i've ever met has said i prefer to play for between 75 and 150 people because the give and take is is a lot more intimate and some people are really good at it like susan told me billy joel made 15,000 people seem like 50 people you know um i haven't had that experience so i i don't know but yeah it's uh it's interesting the the dynamic that happens when you can do that but i love recording um if you get a if you get the right you know if it's the right time and the right place and you're in good, you have to be in good vocal shape. Like I can go do a gig and be in horrible vocal shape and still get through it because I can sing through my acid reflux or whatever I've been doing. But in the studio, it's laid bare. There's no hiding. So you have to be in good shape. But I love recording. I love it. So did you record standards or jazz or everything? Yeah, I recorded everything. So I recorded rock when I was with Generator. We didn't do an album, but we did a bunch of recordings of our original stuff. Then I've sang backups on probably 50 records for people. Um, I've written songs for people on their albums and recorded them. 
Uh, then I did an album called Something Cool that I toured with in 80, in 98. Uh, and then in 2005, I did a recording called How the Night People Pray with Graham Shaw, National Treasure of Canada. Um, and it, they were all his original songs. And I did some touring with that. Um, and I recorded for Greg Lowe a couple different albums, uh, some songs. And then, uh, yeah, just over the year, I've just done, over the years, I've just done a lot of backups. Was there a, sort of like, was there like a cool music scene in Georgia that you, I guess, got to be a part of? Um, you know, the music scene is so diverse in Georgia. There's the country scene, there's the rap scene, there's the R&B scene. I, to be honest with you, I'm, I didn't do anything hip. I played in a, in a, in a corporate wedding band, you know, because that's how you make money in the music business. And, and to be honest, everybody does that. Like even, you know, big stars, they go do corporate gigs. John Mayer played like the, the head of the USC's guy's wedding last weekend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like we had, like I did somebody's wedding last summer and that's when Ben Folds came and did a, a, a you know, a, a 45 minute set. Um, and like I said, I thought, the we, Folds five, I ben thought Folds we were five. friends on Facebook. I, <laughs> you, he was the judge on a, like an acapella version of American Idol. Like, no, I <laughs> had no idea who he was. And in fact, the sound man showed up and I started talking to him and he was really attractive. And I, I thought he was Ben Folds because someone said, oh, this guy named Ben Folds is coming. I'm like, all right. So what does he do? He's like, oh, he's like a big famous, you know, singer, piano player. So this really good looking guy comes in. I'm like, Ben Folds is hot. So I start <laughs> talking to this guy and turns out he's not Ben Folds. He's the, he's the sound man. But yeah, so yeah, I mean, that's what I did. I, I did. I did do jazz gigs. I got hired to do, you know, festivals and stuff and but mostly I was being a parent and a wife and, uh, you know, taking you have, care like, of things. Did you have, like, a cool band who had, like, a lot of experience, I guess? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I played, I mean, the guys in my band had played with, has played with everybody. I mean, musicians that do that, you know, we call them sidemen. You know, Atlanta's a big center. So when the big shows come in, Aretha Franklin, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, these guys are sidemen, right? They hire a lot of bands who come in uh in each city so because they have charts right they have music so you just as long as you can read music you get the gig so yeah a lot of my guys played for a lot of those shows and it was yeah it's exciting and they were all great players but winnipeg is the same thing i mean uh, i didn't play with any better players in atlanta than i have in in winnipeg so was it always a quest to get back to winnipeg Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think in 2014 i started really getting depressed um and my mom had died at the end of 2014 and I just remember thinking I can't live the rest of my life like this I mean there's nothing Atlanta's a perfectly lovely place I I lived in a very very conservative part of Atlanta um, and that's not I'm a flaming liberal so I don't think that was the right fit for me I fortunately most of my friends were from the north and they were you know kind of like me and um but I, you know I obviously I had conservative friends there and, and that, that that doesn't matter to me but but 2014 was when things started to go a little bit. They were looking to the next election. They were looking at candidates. And it started to get very political. And I didn't, I I don't, I'm not comfortable talking about politics. And I'm not, and then people started talking about it. And at the same time, I had lost my parents and I was missing my siblings. And I just said to my husband, let me know if this is the rest of my life. Let me know if I'm going to just be stuck here forever because I don't know what's going to happen to me. This is, I can't do this. And so I just said to him, look, I'm going to move in a couple of years and you can come with me or you can stay here, but I'm not staying here. And I just started planning it. I had no, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't make much money. I, I'm a singer, but I was, if I had to get 
a job and live in a one-bedroom apartment, I would have done that. Mm-hmm. And my kids were old enough where they could have made yeah. the decision. But, you know, my husband was like, give me a couple years, we'll get a house, and I'll figure out how to get up there. So, yeah, so last summer I moved, and it was just the best thing that's ever happened to me. So he's still in this immigration? Yeah, he's, yeah we've, we've filled out the immigration papers. He has taken a short-term um, position at Penn State University to implement their drone lab. And uh, he does some, you know, he has some contracts with some other, he's a consultant for some companies. And so he's like a legit rocket scientist? Yes, he is yeah. actually, yeah. Yeah, he is. Um, so, uh, you know, and he's going to, he's probably going to start his own company when he moves up here. So that's, you know, that's exciting. And we see each other every four weeks. We fly back and forth to see each other. Um, but it's getting, it's getting old now, but you know, it's, it'll work out. We've been married for a long time. So um, we're, we're working on it. We've all always been really independent you know, so I've always traveled. I've always, you know, done things and, and he's always traveled for work. So yeah, it, it, it's just fine. I'm just so happy to be in Canada that I, uh, my stress levels that were making me sick in the States, I just don't even, I'm so healthy now. <laughs> so they brought you back for the big outdoor hockey game. Did they, did they call you because they wanted the, the classic voice? I yeah, guess? yeah, they did. Well, they did the, the, they, the it was the, the alumni game. <laughs> It was a different red dress. I and and honestly, I still fit the other red dress, but I think somebody used it like somebody threw it in some toy box or play box and oh, yeah. and then I found it, I hung it up and then some other kid, you know, some other 12-year-old that was trying to look hoochie just for fun and you know, the basement put it on and it got lost forever. So I found another dress very similar to it and I wore that and uh, yeah, it was super fun. It was the alumni game. So, uh, you know, Tima Solani played, Gretzky played, uh, just a bunch of those guys. It was Edmonton. And it was just really, really fun to see everybody. It was fun to be back and, you know, talk to all those guys and talk to Barry Shankaro and talk to, you know, just see all those people again, you know, and meet the new people. Meet meet uh, David Thompson, is that his name? And, yeah. and Mark Chipman. And so it was really neat to see all those people and, and you know, have that experience. And it was a lovely trip. Which is harder to sing, or which do you prefer to sing, the American anthem or the Canadian? Oh God, anthem? the American anthem's horrible to sing. This is horrible. It's a nice song, but it's it's not it, anthemically. It's it's it, it's difficult, and it's most anthems are not. Most anthems don't have that range because most people don't sing with that yeah, range. Yeah, the big key changes. Right. Yeah. yeah, and so, if you start too high, <laughs> well, I would start in a key that only whales could hear. Right. Um, you know, I would. I would. I mean, I don't have perfect pitch so i didn't know if i was starting an f every time but i i would you know try to sort of approximate oh say like if the bottom note was too low for me it was perfect mm-hmm. so i would you know and sometimes i would pretend like the mic didn't work so you know it'd be like oh you see you know? <laughs> and meanwhile i could see the sound man and he's like checking his stuff you know <laughs> But uh, yeah, it was it was nerve wracking singing the American anthem if I wasn't in really good voice. Um, you know, you just do it. You, you, I've had the great fortune of being uh, what music teachers called uh, unconsciously incompetent. Um, I didn't know how crappy I was at certain things, so it didn't matter to me. Right. Like playing congas at this gig this weekend, I don't know how crappy I am. It just it's just fun, so right. it doesn't matter to me. You know. And so singing the anthem, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't Kate Smith. I wasn't a classically trained singer. I was just singing it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't, you know, they, Sometimes that's better though. That's it is better, yeah. Because you go it's into better. It with less, you know, yeah, things nerves. to be hung up about. Absolutely. Just like, of course I got this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So do you hear like Whitney Houston go you, you do that. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. I I did. I heard uh many really really, you know, great people sing that and what came to me was 
you need to just sing this song straight. Sing it so that people can sing along because that's the only reason you're here. You're not here to be a star. You're not here to be uh, uh, a centerpiece. You're just here to sing the song and have people sing it along with you. And I love that that's what the new singer does too. She just sings it and people sing along. She sings it much higher than I did because she's an actual, you know, classically trained singer. But um, that's all people want. They just want, you know, someone that sings it so that they can sing along. So you've been able to come back here and you, well, because we asked Brent what was like the best gig ever that there was, like he, as he put it, if you could bottle that, you wouldn't need alcohol. It was the homecoming in 2000. Oh, yeah, so, that so was, this was awesome. I, he, he, there was probably like four, three, four thousand people in there. So That was amazing. Um, we did a Roller Goodwin tournament. That was amazing. Um, we've... Honestly, my best gigs have been with the Hanson sisters. My favorite gigs that I've done, and, and except for Glass Tiger, the biggest crowds, definitely the biggest crowds. I think Generator played some gigs, you know, at the convention center, you know, uh, for for Halloween and stuff that had, you know, three four thousand people. But um, I'm t- I was too I can't remember those gigs because they were just another gig. Do you no, know what okay. I mean? Like I did thousands of gigs, so I don't remember that. But my gigs well, with my like sisters. Two, three years ago. Yeah. yeah. And that, no, I mean, there was a homecoming last year. Yeah, that was fun. And then there was the, the, uh, the 75 or something years or so. Yeah. I mean, we've done two or three homecomings and they've been just fantastic, you know, and we, we, we work hard. I mean, we don't just show up and play. We rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. I get the music three months in advance. I start working out the harmony parts and, you know, so it, we don't just show up and play. It's, it's a big deal. You know, we'll talk a little bit about the music scene we have here in Flim Flon, mm-hmm. that's sort of the point of this. Yeah. As, as you were saying in your last Johnny Social Club show, the people who we have here, you know, you know, you performed mm-hmm. everyone. It's a very high caliber of, of musicianship here in town. They're world class. They're, I would be happy to play with them anywhere. They're every bit as good as everybody else I play with. There's no difference. And it's the reason that people like me like to come up here and play. I mean, obviously, this is my hometown. I'd play with them if they were crappy. But other musicians wouldn't. But other musicians like to come up and play with them. So, you know, a lot of people that I meet will bring their own bands. And then I'll see them in Winnipeg and they'll say to me, I just need to play with the Flin Flon guys next time. They were great. You know, they warmed us up or, you know, something. They, they, they realize once they play, they hear them play. Oh, yeah, these guys are really good. So you prefer to play like a Johnny show rather than a Whitney Forum show? You know, they both have their... As far as what who I am as a musician, I love playing Johnny's because I tend to I tend I'm a storyteller. I tell stories. I like to talk to the audience. I like to get some you know I like people to answer questions. So that is really fun playing at an arena show, especially in Flin Flon, where people you know are there because they want to be there. Um, that's super fun as well. I, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I like, it's sort of like saying which of your children do you love best? Okay. You, you love them for different reasons, you know? Well, how did you sort of develop you? Because that's, that's what I like because I don't sing, but I love in-between song banter and yeah. stuff. How did you develop that? Is well, it just, being the youngest of seven okay, children and the, the need for attention. chatty, <laughs> chatty so you can be heard over the din of everybody else. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I've always been... Uh, I've always been a person who likes to get reactions from people, whether it's being shocking or funny or, and when you're one of many, many people, you have to come up with an angle that make gets you attention, you know? So for sure, for sure being a storyteller has been a really great part of, 
the, the what I do in in music. And I had a gig in Atlanta for five years. It was really great because it was in a lounge of a really nice restaurant, and it was a fairly captive audience, and they would listen. You know, so yeah, it's it, it, I like telling stories. I think a lot of times my band feels like, okay, let's take it home, move on, sister. In this business we call show a toast, everyone. Yeah, so I do, I do, I do tend to, you know digress uh as you might have seen the other night but um uh, normally if normally i will work out some stories that i'm gonna tell based on songs based on my relationship i mean what we were talking last night about my sister susan you know god bless her she thinks i'm funny and and we were talking about the difference between the risk of music and the risk of comedy as i'm sure you think about comedy is a risk so when you're when you're trying to be funny you're always risking offending someone you're risking completely failing and not being funny at all uh with music you get to a certain level and you know that that level's fairly consistent comedy is always more of a risk because you come up with things that you like especially if you're off the cuff like I am or like you are you don't always know if it's going to work out you know so it's 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 a little but I, I I just really feel like if someone wants to experience what I do they have to experience what what I do right and that means telling stories and and the whole gambit yeah so these days you're doing jazz you're doing standards you're doing rock you're mm-hmm. are you able mm-hmm. to set your own set list play what you want to play yeah i am i i mean i think when you get to to, you know be in the music business for 30 years you kind of decide what you're going to do and people call me for stuff and it's it's taken me a while to get you know when i first got back to winnipeg last summer i sort of had to go and visit all the you know music dons yeah i had to go visit all the you know the 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 big names and the the heavy hitters and just sort of say i'm back i'm paying my respects you know let me know if you got a gig let me know if somebody you know has a gig and uh, yeah, I'm so I'm slowly getting gigs. I've you know I've created some of my own gigs. I put Generator back together for a big, for a big party, and we play occasionally. And um, I, I still sing jazz gigs, and I really like doing that. And I do one of the things that I really like doing is I play house concerts, which is sort of like a smaller version of Johnny's Social Club, yeah. kind of the Home Roots thing. Yeah. It's not the Home Roots thing, I should, uh, but it, it but it is just people having us for home concerts. So you know we make some some nice money and we're able to have those intimate concerts. And the nice thing about those two is we do a pretty wide array of music like we did at Johnny's, you know, I'll do some jazz standards, but I'll also do some Janis Joplin and, you know, things like that. So that's fun for me. Are you a classically trained conga player? Or when did this <laughs> come from? You know, I, I took, <laughs> well, Juilliard, I, guess. I, you know, it's, it's funny because I can play in time and I can do the right beats, but when you hear me hit them, you know I don't have any experience because the really good conga players learning how to actually approach like the attack the the drum like hit it properly mm-hmm. is takes an incredible amount of technique and that is something that you learn over a period of years and I you know I play them on and off over the years I did take lessons from a friend of mine who's a wonderful conga player so I mean I kind of understand the basics but doing anything worth doing takes a long time and I so I need to create uh, I, I need to have the ability to create the right sound when I play them I can play in time I can play the beats but I don't have the right attack um, and that will come <coughs> because I, I really enjoy playing them I just but right now I don't know how horrible I am so it's good um, yeah so it's fun but away from it. yeah and I did I sort of was looking at Trevor like you can turn these down a bit um, but it's fun and it's it's I noticed I actually noticed when I heard the recording that I 
occasionally I'll, I'll sing slightly off of pitch when I'm playing congas because it's hard to have the brain power to, to do both of those things. Yeah. yeah, and I'm really, I'm I'm a very, I have really good pitch, so that's really upsetting to someone like me who doesn't ever sing off key. And I heard a couple notes last night and I was like, oh my God. But, you know, music isn't perfect, so. So as we're uh, winding her down here, we have our questions I enjoy asking, people hate answering, but okay. Uh, is there a greatest gig ever that you have had? Is there something, I like to say it's sort of, you come off sort of not knowing how you did it or, or can never re-identify how it kind of went. Was there something that stands out? You know, I probably had 10 like that. Really? Yeah. I probably, one one jazz festival that I did, uh, I really felt like I had come into my own with that. Um, I played the Montreal Jazz Fest with Greg Lowe. That was a really exciting time. Um I would say the Hanson Sisters gigs are up there in the top three. Um, but yeah, I've had, I've had a few, but honestly, I've been playing like I've, you know, I played two, three nights a year for the last 31 years. It's, it, it, yeah, probably the, probably the Hanson Sisters gigs. Yeah, I would say are, are, are in my top three, but I've had some other nice gigs too that I don't necessarily remember, but I remember that they were a great night. And are you, do you keep, See, because we've sort of noticed just with the uh, film and TV and stuff, the older you get, you tend to look back and find older stuff that you like rather than new stuff. Or how do you or sort find of new things find new old, the old things? Yeah, yeah, like are you yeah, yeah, you know, to stay contemporary, yeah. or you find all this new old stuff that's all kind of new. I am. I I think that the last thing would anyone what anyone would think about me was is the word contemporary. I'm a I'm about the least contemporary person you've ever heard. In fact, I think the newest song I sing. At corporate gigs is X's and O's by I don't even know. El her King. Name. El King. Yeah. So yes to the dress. <laughs> is is her dad like Rob Schneider? Rob Schneider? Yeah. <laughs> so I, that's a great song. Like that's a great song to me because it sounds like a classic tune, right? But I don't I don't know I I listen to some newer music, but I think it's actually one of the things that has hurt me as an artist that is that I tend to not grasp new things like. The new things that I've listened to are Red Moon Road, uh, the band from Winnipeg. They're amazing. Uh, there was a band that warmed them up called Hillsburn that is from Nova Scotia. They were just outstanding. Um, yeah, so the kids that are playing nowadays, Royal Canoe, I like them. Uh, so I like some of that stuff, but it doesn't really have anything to do with what I do. What I do is, you know, I'm just a person who sings good songs. If they're originals, that's great. Um uh, yeah, so I would say that I'm not, I do find old stuff that becomes new again. I listen to some of my old stuff uh, for fun to hear what, you know, I was doing back in 1993 or whatever. But um, I constantly look for gems that have been forgotten about. I It's rare. I get a lot of songs sent to me. People want me to record their tunes or, you know, want me to demo them or whatever and I just don't hear a lot that I think, oh, this is, you know, in fact, when I was being courted by some record companies, they sent me to record songs with like 50 different people. And the one thing that I asked myself every time I sang was, am I going to be comfortable and enjoy singing this song for the next 30 years? Mm -hmm. Because that's what happens. Mm -hmm. And I came away saying, no, no, I'm not this. I, <laughs> I sang songs written by everybody. And I just, it, I, it just wasn't, I didn't like pop music at the time. I didn't like, 
you know, like I said, it was a weird time because that was when grunge was coming in. And, and so all these songs people were writing seemed very dated to me. And now that I've said that, I don't want to say who I was writing with because I don't want to hurt their feelings. Right. But um, it just didn't mesh with you. It didn't mesh with me. And I, I think that I realized that I, I was maybe somebody that probably should have hooked up with you know, somebody that was writing tunes that, that I could get behind and stayed with that person. I mean, that's why magical combinations happen, you know, but it just didn't happen for me. And I've, now that I'm the age I am, I think I feel really grateful that I didn't make it in the music business because I probably would be dead. So I'm happy that, that my life turned out the way it did. I was able to have uh, a really great, stable marriage and great stable well-adjusted kids and that was worth the sacrifice because i probably would be strung out in, in rehab somewhere if i had stayed on that course honestly yeah, kids are good for that yes <laughs> and uh last question is everybody hits this one that i enjoy asking uh who are three people living or dead who you haven't collaborated with who you would like to collaborate with mm. kenny shields for sure, I think. Um, you know, I've thought of this many times when I hear somebody sing and I think, oh, I'd like to sing with that guy. Um, Harry Connick Jr., I think I'd like to collaborate with. And I've been really enjoying the Allman Brothers lately, so probably them. Well, that's, uh, they've all dated share those people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Steve Bell. I'd love to collaborate with Steve, Steve Bell. Bell. Has, Steve Bell, has yeah. Steve Bell dated Cher? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I gave you four, but yeah, I would love to collaborate with Steve Bell. All right, there we go. So this has been an amazing uh, musical journey through your uh, storytelling here. We're very impressed that you're such a big deal. And, oh, uh, Wow, you here. and 30 other people. <laughs> sat here to our uh, humble uh, kitchen studio. studio be the here. Studio. The super yeah. box office global headquarters with our solariums and horse stables. You'll have a lovely gift HM. basket of exotic they make, fruit. Uh, they, make, they make good coffee. Oh, That's right. I'm glad you like it. It's no, pretty stiff. No, I like it. I like yeah. it. That'll keep you going for your journey. Mm -hmm. So this has been uh, great. Thanks for uh, popping by. And we, Thank you, guys. Uh, look forward to uh, more uh, local gigs and you... Uh, Learning more cool old songs and yeah. Well, thank you for your lovely introduction the other night. I have it. I have it recorded. So yeah, thanks. Because <laughs> she was uh, the guy was like the second best set of con goes up here. The best set's at the back bar. Here she is. And you know what the saddest thing is? It is took I me three times listening to that before I got it. Because she was like, "Oh, you want a beer?" I was like, "Okay," and you were like, but I'm the one, sadly, who pointed the joke out to him because I saw the congas and I was like, well, you could say something about those nice bongos. And he's like, I do it to myself. That's hilarious. He's like, worked out, has like, I have like a standalone that's like stolen from Ukrainian Catholic Church wrestling in like 1940s radio. That is a brilliant combination right there. So I switched it all together and usually I have notes, but I didn't have anything else. It's like, okay, here we go. That was awesome. So yeah, it's uh well it's he's, well because uh the great Mark Colt is is a musical genius. Uh, a great hype man is not his thing, <laughs> so he usually does the introductions. Oh. So what one time my favorite one is uh we we hosted a uh, a refugee family in town. Yep. And um their the brother of this family had passed away wherever they came from in the Middle East. And Mark let us know about this, and then went, ladies and gentlemen, Vanessa Unruh with I Will Survive. <laughs> was it literally 
literally, I will survive. It was literally <laughs> Vanessa <laughs> Ungrow singing, I will survive. Oh, and God. Like, Thanks, Mark. Um, <laughs> fun? We're here for fun tonight? Oh. So just for you guys, I'm like, let's get everybody <laughs> I... whooped up even before you started because, you know, then they oh. can kind of either stay there, but, you know, we can't. Well, that's not as bad as me being at the the uh, Variety Kids telethon. My God, I can't even believe that happened to me. Ron Paley, they say to me, can you do something up-tempo this year? Because you always do ballads. Ron Paley and I are like, yeah, we can do that. What do we do at a telethon? I've still got my health, so what do I care? <laughs> Dan Kramer thinks that I left Winnipeg because of that song. <laughs> Oh I still wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, shit. My husband's like, is it the telethon again? <laughs> it's okay. How do you go back to sleep? Fifty-four forty for the CNIB Foundation. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a, I got a, a whole tre- list. Tremendous chat. I thank uh, Jennifer Henson and always uh, the great Susan Gunn for uh, helping us out. I'm Raphael Serae saying, in the meantime, in between time, good night and good podcasting.